Chapter thirty one of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee. Chapter thirty one. The DeGenville Peerage. The man in the corner rubbed his chin thoughtfully and looked out upon the busy street below. I suppose, he said, there is some truth in the saying that Providence watches over bankrupts, kittens, and lawyers. I didn't know there was such a saying, replied Polly, with guarded dignity. Isn't there? Perhaps I am misquoting. Anyway, there should be. Kittens, it seems, live and thrive through social and domestic upheavals which would annihilate a self-supporting tomcat and to-day I read in the morning papers the account of a noble lord's bankruptcy, and in the society ones that of his visit at the house of a cabinet minister, where he is the most honoured guest. As for lawyers, when Providence had exhausted all other means of securing their welfare, it brought forth the peerage cases. I believe, as a matter of fact, that this special dispensation of Providence, as you call it, requires more technical knowledge than any other legal complication that comes before the law courts, she said and also a great deal more money in the client's pocket than any other complication. Now take the Brocklesby peerage case. Have you any idea how much money was spent over that soap bubble, which only burst after many hundreds, if not thousands, of pounds went in lawyers' and counsel's fees? I suppose a great deal of money was spent on both sides, she replied, until that sudden awful issue. Which settled the dispute effectually, he interrupted with a dry chuckle. Of course, it is very doubtful if any reputable solicitor would have taken up the case. Timothy Beddingfield, the Birmingham lawyer, is a gentleman who, well, has had some misfortunes, shall we say? He is still on the rolls, mind you, but I doubt if any case would have its chances improved by his conducting it. Against that there is just this to be said, that some of these old peerages have such peculiar histories, and own such wonderful archives, that a claim is always worth investigating you never know what may be the rights of it. I believe that, at first, everyone laughed over the pretensions of the Honourable Robert Ingram de Genville to the joint title and part revenues of the old barony of Genville, but obviously he might have got his case. It certainly sounded almost like a fairy tale, this claim based upon the supposed validity of an ancient document over four hundred years old. It was then that a medieval Lord de Genville, more endowed with muscle than common sense, became during his turbulent existence much embarrassed and hopelessly puzzled through the presentation made to him by his lady of twin-born sons. His embarrassment chiefly arose from the fact that my lady's attendants, while ministering to the comfort of the mother, had in a moment of absent-mindedness so placed the two infants in their cot that subsequently no one, not even, perhaps least of all, the mother, could tell which was the one who had been the first to make his appearance into this troublesome and puzzling world. After many years of cogitation, during which the Lord de Genville approached nearer to the grave and his sons to man's estate, he gave up trying to solve the riddle as to which of the twins should succeed to his title and revenues. He appealed to his liege lord and king, Edward, fourth of that name, and with the latter's august sanction he drew up a certain document, wherein he enacted that both his sons should, after his death, share his titles and goodly revenues, and that the first son born in wedlock of either father should subsequently be the sole heir. In this document was also added that if in future times should any lords de Genville be similarly afflicted with twin sons, 
who had equal rights to be considered the eldest-born, the same rule should apply as to the succession. Subsequently, a Lord de Genville was created Earl of Brocklesby by one of the Stuart kings, but for four hundred years after its enactment, the extraordinary deed of succession remained a mere tradition, the Countesses of Brocklesby having, seemingly, no predilection for twins. But in 1878, the mistress of Brocklesby Castle presented her lord with twin-born sons. Fortunately, in modern times, science is more wide awake and attendants more careful. The twin brothers did not get mixed up, and one of them was styled Vicomte Trillemont and was heir to the earldom, whilst the other, born two hours later, was that fascinating, dashing young guardsman, well known at Hurlingham, Goodwood, London, and in his own county, the Honourable Robert Ingram de Genville. It certainly was an evil day for this brilliant young scion of the ancient race when he lent an ear to Timothy Beddingfield. This man and his family before him had been solicitors to the earls of Brocklesby for many generations, but Timothy, owing to certain irregularities, had forfeited the confidence of his client, the late earl. He was still in practice in Birmingham, however, and, of course, knew the ancient family tradition anent the twin succession. Whether he was prompted by revenge or merely self-advertisement, no one knows. Certain it is that he did advise the Honourable Robert de Genville, who apparently had more debts than he conveniently could pay, and more extravagant tastes than he could gratify on a younger son's portion, to lay a claim, on his father's death, to the joint title and a moiety of the revenues of the ancient barony of Genville, that claim being based upon the validity of the fifteenth-century document. You may gather how extensive were the pretensions of the Honourable Robert from the fact that the greater part of Edgbaston is now built upon land belonging to the old barony. Anyway, it was the last straw in an ocean of debt and difficulties, and I have no doubt that Beddingfield had not much trouble in persuading the Honourable Robert to commence litigation at once. The young Earl of Brocklesby's attitude, however, remained one of absolute quietude in his nine points of the law. He was in possession both of the title and of the document. It was for the other side to force him to produce the one or to share the other. It was at this stage of the proceedings that the Honourable Robert was advised to marry, in order to secure, if possible, the first male heir of the next generation, since the young Earl himself was still a bachelor. A suitable fiancée was found for him by his friends in the person of Miss Mabel Brandon, the daughter of a rich Birmingham manufacturer, and the marriage was fixed to take place at Birmingham on Thursday, September 15, 1907. On the 13th, the Honourable Robert Ingram de Genville arrived at the Castle Hotel in New Street for his wedding, and on the 14th, at eight o'clock in the morning, he was discovered lying on the floor of his bedroom, murdered. The sensation which the awful and unexpected sequel to the de Genville peerage case caused in the minds of the friends of both litigants was quite unparalleled. I don't think any crime of modern times created quite so much stir in all classes of society. Birmingham was wild with excitement, and the employees of the Castle Hotel had great difficulty in keeping off the eager and inquisitive crowd who thronged daily to the hall, vainly hoping to gather details of news relating to the terrible tragedy. At present there was but little to tell. The shrieks of the chambermaid, who had gone into the Honourable Robert's room with his shaving water at eight o'clock, had attracted some of the waiters. Soon the manager and his secretary came up, and immediately sent for the police. It seemed, at first sight, as if the young man had been the victim of a homicidal maniac, so brutal had been the way in which he had been assassinated. 
the head and body were battered and bruised by some heavy stick or poker, almost past human shape, as if the murderer had wished to wreak some awful vengeance upon the body of his victim. In fact, it would be impossible to recount the gruesome aspect of that room and of the murdered man's body, such as the police and the medical officer took note of that day. It was supposed that the murder had been committed the evening before, as the victim was dressed in his evening clothes, and all the lights in the room had been left fully turned on. Robbery also must have had a large share in the miscreant's motives, for the drawers and cupboards, the portmanteau and dressing-bag had been ransacked as if in search of valuables. On the floor there lay a pocket-book torn in half, and only containing a few letters addressed to the Honourable Robert de Genville. The Earl of Brocklesby, next of kin to the deceased, was also telegraphed for. He drove over from Brocklesby Castle, which is about seven miles from Birmingham. He was terribly affected by the awfulness of the tragedy, and offered a liberal reward to stimulate the activity of the police in search of the miscreant. The inquest was fixed for the 17th, three days later, and the public was left wondering where the solution lay of the terrible and gruesome murder at the Castle Hotel. End of chapter 31